Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, April 13th, 2020. Happy Passover and Happy Easter. Today we are dropping two podcasts. The first is The Search for the Cure to Corona. In this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Eldad Hode of Columbia University, who is one of the physician scientists working tirelessly to find a treatment to COVID-19. The second podcast today is Newborn Babies and Corona. In this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Anne-Marie Straustrup, who is the director of the NICU and newborn medicine at Mount Sinai. On Thursday, we will have two more podcasts, both with Dr. Stephanie Melka, one of my partners at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates, a terrific doctor, and a fellow runner. The first podcast will be, I'm Dr. Melka, how can I help you? And the second podcast is titled, Teaching Hospitals and Why Residents Are Our Friends. I'm sure you'll enjoy both of those as well. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to Healthful Woman. I really hope you've been enjoying them. If you have the chance, I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate us on Apple. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave a short review as well. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're very excited to have with us Dr. Eldad Hode, who's an associate professor of pathology and cell biology at New York Prez Columbia University, board certified in pathology and transfusion medicine. Eldad, welcome to Healthful Woman. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Nady? Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm doing well. Thank you. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you, and I think our listeners will really enjoy hearing from you, is that you're one of the investigators looking to see if plasma from people who've recovered from COVID, from corona, can actually be used as a treatment for people who are currently suffering from the illness. Is that correct? Correct. That's one of the things that's occupying my time at the moment. And so before we get into those details, just so everyone understands you know, who you are and where you're from, what does it mean to be an expert in pathology and transfusion medicine? What exactly do you do? I've been practicing at the attending level for roughly 10 years now, and over time have been focusing more and more on, on research, um, more so than, than patient care. And my research is focused mostly on iron biology, iron deficiency anemias, things like that. And so I, I do everything from basic science, lab work with cells and in, in incubators, to animal models, to human trial of iron deficiency and, and potential effects on, on brain and, and things like that. And that's what I was doing until about a month ago, where most of my effort was just purely research. And then March happened. COVID really became serious in New York. And I guess now we're on like March 40th or March 42nd. <laughs> Basically switched the focus of the laboratory because they shut us down. So they said all research has to stop. And that's not essential research or associated with COVID-19. And so they shut us down. And I have a number of postdocs from Italy who for a while now were, were struggling with, with what was going on with their parents in, in Italy who were quarantined and, and worried about them. And so we all sort of banded together and decided to just keep working and switch to doing whatever we could to, to help with the, the COVID response. So when you're in academia, you have to justify your, your effort. You have 100% effort and somehow you have to split it up. So you can do clinical work, you can do teaching, or you can do research. And so I was doing about 90% research with my time. And the other 
10% was clinical and administrative responsibilities. And one of the things I did there was I ran something called the Center for Advanced Laboratory Medicine, which basically is a link between the, the clinical laboratories at the hospital and industry. So it helped industry validate new, new assays and helped industry validate new machines and instruments that, that you could use for laboratory testing. So when COVID-19 hit, that center actually became vital to, to the effort because, you know, one of the things we didn't have at the time was testing capacity. And so basically that staff that I was directing became, became repurposed to developing new tests for COVID-19, both molecular and, and, and mostly the, the antibody-based tests which is part of my expertise in transfusion medicine has to do with different parts of blood and, and the antibodies are found in plasma. And so testing plasma for antibodies is something that we became very interested in. And so that was one of the efforts we began. And then, you know, being a transfusion medicine trained physician, you know, we run the blood banks in the hospital. And so we, you know, we provide red cells, plasma, platelets to, to patients every day. And that's sort of our training. And um, we also collect stem cells from patients to, to then be provided to others. And so, you know, that's it's sort of my expertise from various levels fell in place to, to help lead the effort at Columbia to making a convalescent plasma trial happen. And I just wanted to state that, you know, this is happening at every hospital, at every major academic center in the country. And people tried this approach in prior epidemics. It's not the first time someone's trying convalescent plasma. So I didn't invent this as a known entity. Um, there are a lot of issues with it. Being transfusion medicine trained, I understand those issues. But, you know, this is not a new concept. It's been tried. And in, in, in even in the Spanish flu in, in 1918, they tried convalescent plasma. That was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you, that there's every center is pretty much looking into this. Are these coordinated efforts or is each you know, hospital or academic center or laboratory doing it independently? Is there, are the results being shared? How is that being coordinated, if at all? The way it's being rolled out and the way people want to use it and the way the FDA is, is rolling it out, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be negative, but they want to make it a national resource so that anyone who, who wants this can use it in what's called compassionate use, which means, you know, you have someone there there's nothing else we can offer, and so let's just give them some plasma and see what happens. The danger there, and this, this is how basically it's been rolled out in prior epidemics, and the problem with doing that is you don't really get to find out whether it works or not if you do it that way, because some people will get better, and they might have gotten better otherwise, and some people get worse, and there's, at least scientifically, there are ways that antibodies can make you get worse if, if you're really sick. So there are potential harms here, too, and so it might not be beneficial. and so. There are a number of academic centers, and I've been in touch. Um, I'm on a, a daily national call and international call for how to do this together in multi-center trials so that we can, as quickly as possible, get at the answer as to where this might be useful and where it might not be useful. And so you could think of a number of indications, which is, you know, potential uses for, for this treatment. Scientifically, we believe that it probably is most effective the earlier on you give it. Um, so to give an analogy that, that I like to use, and I've used before, and since you're an obstetrician, you'll understand this, you, you'll, you'll understand this analogy that, you know, one of the ways mothers protect their babies is that they provide their babies with antibodies through the placenta when they're pregnant. And then when the baby is born, babies are born without the ability to produce antibodies. It takes them four or five months to develop that ability. And so that, those antibodies they get from their mother protects them for the first four or five months of life. 
And so in a similar way, if we gave antibodies from convalescent plasma to healthcare workers or to, you know, if we went into nursing homes to people who are very vulnerable and gave them those antibodies, we might be able to protect them for a number of months because antibodies circulate for a few months. And so that's the prophylactic trial that one of the trials that we want to do. If you take it to the next level, you have people who are hospitalized. They're very sick, but they don't need a respirator yet. And so one could hypothesize or think that maybe if you give it at that point, you might be able to prevent people from getting really sick and then they go home instead of ending up on a respirator. So that's another trial we would like to do. And then, you know, at the end, then there's those people who are really sick. We have no other option. They're on a respirator in the, in the critical care unit. You know, let's try it there. Our fear is that if, if you give it, especially to the sicker patients, is that if you provide people with antibodies that are then going to attack the virus, you might actually make inflammation worse. And so you might actually worsen the disease in the lungs as opposed to making it better, which is why we, we want to start with trials earlier on as opposed to the ones in, in the ICU for the really critically ill patients, which is actually where they're going to be used. This is going to be used for compassionate use. But we would like to, to try all those trials. And, and unfortunately, when you do a trial, they're complicated and they're ethically fraught. And so we're also having daily discussions with, with the ethical boards to figure out how to do this in a safe way for everyone in an, in an ethical way. Because, you know, you can imagine there are a lot of, of issues here. You don't want to harm anyone I and mean, you want to get the data as quickly as possible. But in order to do a randomized controlled trial, half the people or some of the people are going to get regular plasma as opposed to convalescent plasma. Right. Meaning they'll get something that does not have the antibodies because otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell if the antibody group does better because you have to know who you're comparing them to. When there is a compassionate use option where if you're really sick, you know, you could just ask for it and, and theoretically get it, it, it makes it more ethically challenging to do these kinds of studies. And so th these are difficult things to, to coordinate, but we're trying to do it as best we can as a, as a national and an international effort where we could share the data. But there are disagreements over what approach to take. And so, for example, in Italy, they think it's, that you should get three doses and they're doing one dose every day for three days, where here we're, we're, we're potentially going to just try one dose in, in the New York hospital. So, you know, there are different approaches taken and that's okay because you learn more. It's because one approach may work better than the other and you won't know unless you know, you try the different approaches, but we're also working on ways to harmonize the protocols because each institution at the end of the day will have their leader who's going to, you know, push this forward at their institution, but we're trying to harmonize all the protocols so at least we're trying to do things the same and then can share the data because at the end of the day, it's a numbers game. The, the sooner you get to a certain number of patients that, that have been treated and randomized to the control group, the sooner you'll be able to get your answer. And then if it works, and stop the trial and just begin treating people because once you know it works, then you can, you know, you can roll it out to everyone. If you, if you have a sense that it's being harmful and so we're developing data safety monitoring boards that are going to, you know, look at the data, you know, weekly or, you know, periodically to see is there a signal that potentially we're actually causing harm as, a, as opposed to benefit. Unless you do it in a randomized way, you can't get that information. And, and they will stop the study once they, they feel that, you know, based on certain statistical and ethical principles that, that you should stop the study that you're potentially causing harm. Right. I mean, you would think that in each, certainly in New York, each hospital would have enough patients to do their own study in theory, and obviously it's great to coordinate it. Is there any concern that the labs are doing it differently, not just in terms of who they give it to and maybe what dosing, 
you know, they give it to them with frequency, but the actual lab processing, are there significant differences between labs or is everyone doing it pretty much the same thing? No, there is some difference there. And, and so we can talk about that. So first of all, the donation itself will all happen at the New York Blood Center if you're in the New York area. The Red Cross also is doing some collections, but for the most part, most of the plasma units will all be processed, collected and processed by the New York Blood Center in the same way. Where the difference comes, and this is also where there's disagreement, is that it turns out that antibodies come in different flavors. There are different types of antibodies, and there are some antibodies that might be neutralizing to the virus, and there are some antibodies that might enhance the virus. And as we're testing people, and, and we're still working on building better tests for, for looking at these different kinds of antibodies, the antigens or, or what we need to make the test are still in development. And we're working with the Department of Health and others to try to refine the testing so that we can actually detect these antibodies. But Different hospitals are taking different approaches as to how they're qualifying the donors and what kind of antibody testing they're doing, which could be problematic. So, so that would not allow you to necessarily share the, the data because we might be using, you know, we plan on using maybe more stringent criteria where I'm making sure before I qualify a donor to go donate plasma, I want to make sure that they have the right kind of antibodies in their plasma that I would at least scientifically, hope would, would work. The FDA and Red Cross approach is at the moment, they're not requiring antibody testing at all. So you could donate and potentially not even have antibodies in your plasma. You know, we feel strongly that there should be some testing up front to, to qualify. And I know a number of other New York hospitals are doing the same, but many other institutions are not doing that. And so, so that's an important distinction. And the truth is, at the moment, there is no good FDA-validated test for antibodies. And so we're all using internally developed homebrew assays. Um, and, you know, for, for example, tomorrow I have someone printing me plates with viral proteins on it so that we can, you know, work on our own test. You know, we're all using different tests, and so the, the results are going to be different. They're not going to be harmonized. We may be measuring the same thing, but the, the results will be completely different. And so it's a little bit of a mess at, at the moment, that part of it. Right, and I think that a lot of people might not realize how complex it is to try to find, you know, either a cure or a treatment for this, because, you know, some of it's just logistical that you have a lot of people around the country, different places with different labs and different techniques. Okay, fine. But, you know, that can somehow be coordinated. But like you said, there's, there are knowledge gaps here. People don't know what to study necessarily or what dosing to try or how to do it or whether you should, you know, require antibody testing or not, because it's a lot of it's just opinion and experience. And you have a you know, a whole group, I mean, a large group of extremely smart people who are dedicated to trying to do this. And there's disagreement because when there isn't definitive knowledge, people are going to disagree. And then what you mentioned is so important about rolling out a study is not simple. You have to make sure what you're doing isn't dangerous to people. And you also have to try to make sure that when you're doing something, you can actually prove that it works or not. And if you just give it to everybody, like you said, you really have no idea if it helped, hurt, or did nothing. And so the only way to really do it properly is to compare people who get it to people who don't. But then how do you decide? You have to decide randomly. And then a lot of people won't sign up for that trial. And it's really complicated, even if you get rid of all the logistic complications, just the actual, like you said, ethics of it, of rolling out something when there's media coverage and everyone's going to want stuff. It's it's very hard stuff. And it's I don't think people always appreciate how complicated this is. It's complicated in the best of times. So, you know, I have a clinical trial that I was doing, you know, prior to a month ago, and that took two years to develop and, and figure all the 
different logistics out. And here we're trying to do this in weeks. Imagine that you had to consent a patient to, to participate in the trial and they're intubated. You don't have staff to do the consent because you know, all the healthcare workers are now being called to do, you know, frontline work or to do, you know, the work that we need to do to get done to take care of patients in the hospital. And so there are staff shortages, there's equipment shortages. It is very challenging to get this done. And, you know, I'm worried about safety for the donor. I'm worried about safety for the phlebotomist at the blood center who has to bleed the donor. So one of the reasons we're qualifying people and swabbing their nose is because we don't want to send someone who has COVID-19 to the blood center who's going to get a phlebotomist stick because then that phlebotomist is out and maybe other phlebotomists will be out and we won't be able to get any blood products for our patients. And then I need to worry about safety for the recipient. And so all these things are so complicated, even in the best of times, but doing it when you have logistical challenges of getting things done at, at the moment in, in the hospitals, is, I know you, you practice as well, so you know how difficult it is. It's quite challenging. Just getting taking one step back for a second, just so people understand the idea of why this would work potentially is that if someone has a disease, particularly an infectious disease, at a certain point, if they recover from it, one of the reasons they recover is that their body develops these antibodies against, in this case, a virus. So the antibodies fight off the virus. And the thought is, okay, if we have all these people walking around with sort of like this cure inside their body that kills the virus, if we can somehow pull that out and isolate it and give it to other people, they can be given these antibodies before they naturally have an opportunity to do it themselves. And hopefully, you know, either like you said, keep them from getting sick or if they get sick, get them better quickly. Is that a good, is that a good way to explain it? Would you, would you add some nuance to that maybe? No, it's a perfect way to explain it. So, you know, it's, when you see a new virus, it's going to take your body time to figure out how to make an antibody to it. And so it's, probably takes roughly a, a five days to, to a week to start to make an antibody. And those initial antibodies aren't that great. And over time, they mature and they actually change and they become more and more effective at, at, at killing the virus. And so uh, this is how vaccines work. So basically, when you give a vaccine, you're teaching your immune system to fight a virus. You know, if you give a vaccine virus, then you're effectively what you're injecting is, let's say, a dead virus that will teach your body to recognize that virus and make a, a very strong antibody response that will then protect you should you see the live virus later on. That's why we think it would probably be more effective, you know, in the first week of, of symptoms to, to give that people antibodies prior to your body being able to really make an inadequate antibody response and, and the virus is just taking hold. And so if we can give the, the antibodies at that point, we think we, we may be able to prevent people from getting more severe disease or we give it to healthcare workers, you know, ultimately protect them from even getting disease in the first place. And this is used, for example, for rabies. One of the treatments for rabies is rabies immune globulin, where they, they basically extract antibodies from, from people. And, you know, because if you get rabies, it's invariably fatal. And so one, the treatment for it, if you're exposed, is to give them antibodies from, from someone who's immune to rabies. And so... This is known, and, and while we're working on these trials, I'm also in discussion with industry because if this works with plasma, ultimately plasma is not easily transferable and there's other issues with it because it can also have the HIV, hepatitis, and other things in it. Ultimately, what we want to be able to do is if you pull plasma and you take 10,000 liters of plasma, put it together, you can virally inactivate it, extract out the antibodies, and put them in little vials and send them 
all across the world to, to treat people. And this process already exists, and you being an obstetrician actually know this, because there's Rogan, um, which is exactly that. There, there's actually a plant in Buffalo where they make Rogan. They basically immunize men with Rh-positive blood. But the men have Rh-negative blood. They immunize them with Rh-positive blood and then extract the antibodies from them, and they use that to treat women who are Rh-negative and are pregnant. You could probably explain that better than I can. <laughs> I was the one who drove you away from OBGYN, so there you go. <laughs> Back in oh, I have memories, actually, of, of you as, as the chief resident and and, uh, and mentoring me in, in OBGYN, so, so I don't think you drove me away. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you listen, you know, Elda was a medical student at Mount Sinai. He was doing OB. I was teaching him, and he ran away from it. So, you know, you can make your own conclusions from uh, how that worked out. But it's, you know, it's, it's interesting when you mentioned the difference between vaccines and, and immunoglobulin. So vaccines, you know, we give them to people and has, let's say, let's say for Corona, you would give someone an injection, which has some of the COVID-19 virus in it that's dead. So it wouldn't infect them. And then the body would create their own antibodies against it. But that takes more time. The immune globulin is actually giving someone the antibodies, sort of like a, like you give them an antibiotic and it lasts for several months, as you were saying. And so that's sort of like the, the quick fix. And it's it, we do have that also with chicken pox. It's sometimes used to give immunoglobulin against varicella, which causes that. And so it does exist. And so because it exists, are you how hopeful are you that this is going to work? For people, is it something like like a hail mary type of thing, or is this? Yeah, we really believe it's going to work. We just have to get the details on it. It will work for certain indications better than others. It will probably work very well in nursing homes. It will work very well with healthcare workers prophylactically. It may work very well in preventing people from getting on a respirator. There are anecdotal reports which you have to be careful about, but there are anecdotal reports that it even works in people who are critically ill. So there are case series or. You know, reports of five patients who were in the intensive care unit were really sick. They got a, a dose of, of convalescent plasma, and then, you know, miraculously, they ended up leaving the hospital. You know, there are anecdotal reports, which I don't necessarily believe, but I, I think that there will be indications where this will work. But the reason why I'm working as hard as I am is because, you know, I'm hoping that this will get us through and help us for the next month or two before the vaccines and, and some of the other therapies come online and are able to prevent us. I don't think this is necessarily the ultimate solution for, for COVID-19. But if it could save some lives in the meantime, while we're waiting for the other treatments to come aboard, and there are vaccine trials that are that are in the works and, and things like that. So, you know, things are moving much more quickly these days than, than they would in, in normal times. If there is a beautiful thing in all of this is, is watching the scientific community come together in ways that I never thought was possible. And people are really putting their egos aside and working together. I'm working with people that you know, I never would have worked with in the past who have never would have spoken to me in the past. And, and now we're, they're texting me and we're talking multiple times throughout the day. It's just an amazing experience. You know, so in a sense, I feel fortunate that, you know, this may be the one time where I'm actually useful for something and I, and I could do something. And, and, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I was going to ask you two things about that. The first is, did you ever think you'd be getting so much press as a pathologist and transfusion medicine specialist, I mean, this is, you know, you are, you know, you are the it man right now with this, uh, yeah, with this know, condition. Know. And you know me from synagogue. I'm a pretty quiet guy. I, myself, I'm an introvert. If anyone, you know, if anyone hadn't figured that one out yet, this is horrible for me. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone wants a, everyone wants like a piece of Eldad. You know, like having to be 
an extrovert all day long. Uh, by the time I get home in the evening, I'm just exhausted. And, and my poor wife, you know, wants me to talk to her. And she's like, well, maybe I'll do the talking now. Um, <laughs> it, it is, this is draining and, and it's difficult for me. But, you know, I feel scientists have failed to be heard in the past. I feel that scientists do have something to offer here. And I, I hope people will listen, um, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm fighting the, the introvertedness. I appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners do. One of the other things you mentioned about scientists coming together, I've been doing a few corona-related podcasts recently, and two of the people I had on were specifically talking about that. One of them was the director of labor and delivery. The other one was the director of the NICU. And both of them were saying how difficult this is clinically and it's so taxing and there's so much it takes so much time and it's so hard and people are sick and it's just a very stressful and difficult time but both of them were moved by how well teams came together and everyone like you said put aside any differences they may have or egos which always come into the play with you know people in medicine or research or humans in general and that everyone really is working towards the same common goal which is trying to help people trying to find a cure trying to help people for whom there isn't a cure to get them through this. And it really has been cutting across, I think, all of society, not just in medicine and research. And that is one of the you know, bright spots in this crisis is to see the ability of humans to come together and citizens and community members. It's something like we saw with 9-11. We saw it with, with Sandy that just people really are able to come together when times are difficult. And that's rewarding in a sense. Yeah, no, it, it really is. And so I, I feel fortunate that, I, that I'm able to be a part of it. Also awkward, just it's in a sense exhilarating to, to be here and, and be able to, to do something. And do you have any preliminary data on this or have you been using it yet? Have you any preliminary thoughts on it? Or if not, do you know when you might know more about this? Obviously, you know, a large scale trial is going to take a little bit of time, but just in terms of the next, you know, days or weeks, what have you been seeing thus far? What do you expect to see? I want to try to do this in in a trial format so that we know whether this works or not. And so in order to really do that, we need enough units of, of plasma in our in our blood bank to support the trial. And so at the moment, I'm trying to, you know, get as much plasma as I can in, in the in the blood bank. I'm working on testing it to to quantify the antibodies and also figure out which ones might be neutralizing so that we only use the ones that that are really good and then in the meantime also working with the ethical boards and the other statisticians the data managers there's a lot that needs to go into this the people who are going to be doing the consent to to help make this trial happen as quickly as possible because every day matters we all are aware of that I, you know you know what it, what an IRB is an IRB is the Institutional Review Board for, for Clinical Trials. Typically, you, you write a protocol, you submit it to the IRB, and then you wait, and you wait sometimes a month or a month and a half before they review it, and they come back with comments, and then you revise, and then, you know, maybe two, three months before you get IRB approval. The IRB boards here are meeting 24-7 on weekends, and they have a turnaround time of 24 to 48 hours because they realize that some of these trials are are that important to get done quickly that, you know, everyone is moving at the speed of lightning to try to make this happen. And so you can't imagine how many people are being mobilized. Try to get started as, as quickly as possible. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, within a week, we'll have enough plasma blood bank to at least begin a trial if we're approved. We've worked out all the kinks in, in, in how to do that. And that's what I'm struggling with at the moment. 
And how do people sign up for this if they believe they've had COVID-19 or they know they've had it? How do they come and donate plasma? Again, it's a two-step process. The first step is the hospitals have to qualify them. And I think each of the hospitals have links up. I have one that's up for Columbia, and, and I can share that with you afterwards. Each of the hospitals have their links, and you just click the link, follow the questions, sign consent, and then we have a clinic here at Columbia. So I'm a pathologist now with the clinic. You come in, we collect some blood, we do a nasal swab, say thank you. And then later that day or or the next day, I'll I'll be in touch with the results or someone will be in touch with the results. Um, And and then if you qualify, then you get referred to the New York Blood Center for the actual donation, where they'll explain the process of of what's involved. But it's, again, a needle in the arm, and they're going to keep you on a machine for an hour or so to collect plasma from, from your blood. Other than the initial needle, it's a pretty painless process. Right. And there should be low risk to the donors. It should be low risk for the donor. So, it's, uh, you know, I've done it a number of times. Many people donate what are called double red units when they go donate and they sit on a machine for, for 30 minutes. So you can donate two red cell units as opposed to one. It's a similar machine if, if, if people have done that. It's been around for, you know, 50 years or so. You're doing the trials and let's say you find that it's not as effective as you would have hoped it would be, the plasma. What, what might you learn from the research otherwise? There must be something that you can learn even without having an effective treatment. You know, one of the big issues is people want to test in their home. Lots of your listeners are wondering, why don't we have a test we can do at home? So th- there are now 28 different companies with antibody tests that are they're not really FDA approved. They have an emergency use authorization. And, you know, people want to get tested and, and they don't understand the, the complexity. The, the tests that are currently out there are not perfect and they have issues and they give you false results. That, that can become dangerous if, if you let people do that at home. At the moment, my recommendation would be with the antibody-based tests, at least that these are not tests that should be done at home unless you know what you're doing. But my hope is that, you know, within a week we'll have much better tests that are more sensitive and specific for, for COVID-19 that, you know, potentially we can begin rolling out to test all New Yorkers if, if we have the capacity to do so, which which would be, you know, one of our hopes. And you're talking about testing people to find out if they have If they've corona, had it. If so they've lots had of it. People, lots of people have been sick. They think they might have had it, but they never got tested because you, they followed the recommendations, which is if you're not that severely ill, you, sh- you shouldn't go to the hospital. To stay at home, it'll pass, and then, you know, you're done. But if you want to know if you've had it and you've generated, and the way to do that is to see whether you've generated antibodies to it. And and those tests are not ready for prime time yet. They're they're close. You know, one of the things I've learned by doing this is I've, I've learned about the antibodies to COVID-19, which is not something I would have learned otherwise, and, and how to test for it, and what are the issues with, with testing for it. And so I've learned a lot, and hopefully it will, you know, we'll be able to roll out some new testing platforms uh, in, in the near future. And I think that's really important, you know, from a public health perspective, you know, there's the first kind of test, which is determining who has the disease and who doesn't. And that's its own set of complexities about having tests. And do you test everyone? Do you test certain people? And again, like you said, originally, people weren't really getting tested because in order to get tested, they'd have to come into the doctor's office or the hospital. And if they were sick, you didn't want them to infect anybody. And there really wasn't a specific treatment for it. And so that is its own science to try and determine who has it. Should we test people? Should we, you know, triage people based on whether they have it or not? And then, the, and that also helps you understand the spread of the disease. It helps you understand percentages because you know how many people actually have it and whatnot. And then the second aspect is determining if someone had it 
And if they have antibodies, because then theoretically, for example, if there are doctors who had it and have antibodies to it, they would be maybe less of a risk to take care of patients because they're presumably, although not definitively, they're presumably not going to get it again. And so those are the people who could be working with sick patients or those are the people who maybe could, you know, go back out onto the streets and whatnot and start going back to work and all of that. Right. And But that does rely on the assumption that if you have the antibodies, you're not, A, you're not contagious and B, you're not going to get it again. And how confident are we in those two statements that if you have antibodies, you know, you can't give it to somebody and you can't get it. I, I, I imagine it's just hopeful. It's hopeful. And, and let me tell you one of the issues we're currently struggling with that we're still trying to figure out. We're screening people who are 14 days with no symptoms. They've had COVID-19 and even it was diagnosed. They had a nose swab at the time. They know it was COVID-19. They were really sick. They got better. They're now two weeks out with no symptoms. And in order to clear them for, for donating convalescent plasma, we have to swab their nose again to make sure they're negative before we can send them to the New York Blood Center. We're finding that many people are still positive. And so that nose swab, what you're testing for there is RNA, which is sort of like the DNA of the virus that is still present in the back of your nose 14 days after you don't have symptoms. And, and the big question that everyone has, is that still infective virus? Uh, you know, is the fact that we can still measure RNA 14 days out, is that, you know, is that infective or not? Because that, that's a big deal if people are feeling good two weeks later and they can still sneeze and give you coronavirus. You know, you could also find remnants of the RNA in, in stool. And so, you know, the, the common vector for this is probably children, especially in the Jewish communities where children have a lot of play dates. Anyone who's had children knows how well they wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. And so if it's still, you know, they're feeling good, they're playing, they go to the bathroom, they don't wash their hands well, now you have potentially virus being spread throughout the house. And so we still don't know the answers to these questions. And so there are a lot of other trials and studies that I'm involved in and that others are doing the answers to these questions. There's so many layers for this, and it's hard to even fathom all of them uh, for most people because, you know, most things we think of, you know, you get sick, you get better. Or you get sick, you take a medicine, you get better. But here there's so much we don't know that you would need to know about who's contagious and who isn't, who's recovered and who hasn't, who's going to get it again, what's the chance they're going to spread it. And because there's so much uncertainty about this, number one, we really don't know what to recommend. And number two, you're going to hear a lot of different recommendations and different people are going to say different things because really nobody knows. And we're just all taking our best guess until we get this research done and get a lot more of these questions settled. And that's why you know, people like you who are working in the laboratory with the molecules and then obviously bringing out to plasma and to patients is so critical to fighting this disease. Also critical, though, are the, the people in the community who, who are hopefully listening. And anyone who's had it is now could do something to help because you could be a subject in a research study to help, help us try to figure this out. And, and I can tell you already that the people who volunteer are willing to do, I mean, we don't ask them to do anything, but are willing to do anything to try to help because I think we're all in this together. And so I hope that the people listening will, will volunteer for studies and click links. It doesn't have to be at Columbia. It could be at Rockefeller, Sinai, Montefiore, NYU. Just click the links and, and try to participate in trials because there are wonderful scientists everywhere who are, who are just trying to figure out the answers to these questions to inform how we come back to, you know, to, to living in a normal society again. Totally agree. And I echo that. If anyone has the opportunity 
to participate in one of these trials by donating, absolutely positively you should, unless obviously you don't qualify or it's not safe for you or anything like that. But the vast majority of people would be able to, a minor inconvenience, and you can absolutely help a lot of people. And one of the other things that I wanted to go into is you've been living apart from your family because of this, correct? Yes, I have. I moved out, I don't know, it feels like a year ago, but it might have been three weeks or so. And and you're you're you know you live in New Jersey in the same we live in the same neighborhood as you said we go to the same synagogue, and you're living in Manhattan in a hotel correct? I am friend of a friend set me up sort of like the shine. I'm one of the only guests in the hotel on a separate floor, and I have a hotel room. And the the community and of, of friends that I have on the Upper West Side takes turns, and they feed me every night, and so I get my meals delivered, and that way I can you know, spend as much time as I can focusing on, on the work. And I don't have to worry about safety of my family, the safety of my kids, and worry about how to feed myself. It's been very special this whole time. Difficult, but but special. I mean, it's remarkable on so many levels. Number one, it's remarkable the sacrifice that you're making and that your family's making, Eileen, your kids, to be apart during this time is difficult for everyone. It's obviously difficult for you because you're away from your family and you're, you know, staying in a, you know, different place. It's difficult for her. She's home with her kids, your kids and, you know, that's obviously we know is is complicated and it shows what kind of sacrifice you have, but it also as you said, you know, people are really stepping up to help. The owner of the hotel is putting you up there for free and people are bringing you meals and making sure you're taken care of and it must be really uplifting to feel appreciated in that sense. I mean, how often, you know, do people appreciate their local pathologist? And I could tell you the one thing I appreciate the most is that when they do leave me meals, oftentimes there are notes from from kids or or, or lovely notes that are that are very heartfelt that are left with the food and it's it, it really is it's heartwarming to come home to that every night. And so it, it is a special time. And for whatever reason, the training that I got, and you were one of the people who trained me, all the mentors that I've had my whole life, from my parents to, to my teachers, to the, to the people who taught me medicine, prepared me to contribute in a little way to, to this effort. My hope is that, you know, someone will figure this out before long. If I can end on a funny note, one of the, the memes I, I heard was that if, if scientists don't figure this out, stay-at-home parents will. So... <laughs> <laughs> out of necessity. Yes. So, um, you know, the real hero is my wife, who's at, who's at home with four kids running kindergarten through high school. It's remarkable. I mean, your your whole family is contributing to this and trying to come up with the cure. You're doing it, you know, in your day-to-day work. They're doing it by supporting you. The community is behind you. And honestly, you you deserve that. I mean, you're just, you're one example amongst many of people who are doing everything they can in their power to try to help others. And everyone has different abilities and different talents and different strengths. And if everybody is doing whatever they can to help, we will figure this out in one way or another. And you're certainly one of the leaders in that. Eldot, thank you so much for coming on Health Woman. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the time. We all appreciate what you're doing. I hope you are well and your family's well, and we get to see you back in Jersey soon. Can't wait to give people hugs again. All right. Have a great day. Be well. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day.
The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only and does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.